following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. I was a little uh, nervous about coming here today um, because, you know, I'd heard maybe the rapture happened. I thought I might be the only one, you know, but I saw Brian out front. I thought, I'm okay, you know, but um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning, Matthew chapter 6. A woman who was newly married, newly wed, she was about to leave her, her work that day, her office, and she said this to her co-worker, she said, you know how wonderful it is, now that I'm married, to know that my husband is going to be worrying about me as I drive home, this is a snowy day, drive home on these icy roads, and, and he'll rush out to meet me in the driveway when I, when I arrive, how wonderful that is. Well, she had a little difficulty, she called her husband from the road to say, you know, that the roads are a little worse than I thought. I've spun out a few times. I'll be a little bit late. To which her husband said, look, I, I will worry until the moment you arrive. Please be very careful. And uh, she pulls up in the driveway, and sure enough, he he's rushes out to meet her. And as she's getting out of the car, he's, he's rubbing the fender of their brand new car and saying, you know, I was so, I was so worried. Uh, you sure the car's okay? <laughs> I thought it was funny, too, but... Uh, our subject is, as, as Pastor Brian said, it's, it's worry. And, uh, and I'd like to say, you know, that, that this is not an issue for me. That's not true. I, I, I worry every day of my life, just as Brian was alluding to. But, uh, uh, and, and so really, this message, it's as much for me as, as anybody. Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 16 there, Matthew six sixteen. <clears throat> Moreover, when you fast, it seems like it's not related to worry, it's all going to tie in, you'll see. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Cubit is a measure, it's 18 inches. If you were suddenly 18 inches taller, two things would be true of you. Number one, your pants would be too short. 
But number two, you would really stick out. Everybody would notice you. And so Jesus is hinting at one of the things that we typically worry about, our stature, what other people think of us. And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They don't do any work. They just pop out and look beautiful, just like me. It's all a matter of opinion. Um, And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink or what shall we wear? For for after these things, the Gentile seeks, the, the unbelievers, the heathen, people that don't know God. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Father, we thank you for this word. And we, as Pastor Brian talked about, this is something uh, at least I struggle with. I've got to believe many struggle with. And Lord, this is your word you want to speak to your people today through your word. I pray you anoint your word, you anoint the lips of our teacher today, you anoint our ears to hear what, you, what your spirit would say to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus begins this teaching on worry by identifying three symptoms, three symptoms of a problem. Now, perhaps you heard the story of three pastors with a problem. These were all pastors of churches, and they recognized there was something missing in their ministry. And so they agreed to go together on a prayer retreat. And after praying for some hours, they all came to the, conclu- the same conclusion that, uh, that they needed to confess their sin to one another. And the first pastor, uh, uh, he, he confesses, you know, I have the sin of covetousness. You know, I see somebody with a with a, with a nicer home than I have, and I wish that were my home, or I see a, a better car than I have, I wish I were driving that car. Second pastor says, well, I have a sin of lust, I, I just can't keep my eyes off the ladies. Third pastor said, well, I have the sin of gossip, and I just can't wait to tell everybody what you said. But in our text this morning, Jesus is talking about worry. But before he gets there, he insists on addressing these three symptoms of a problem because it relates to worry. And here are those three symptoms. This won't make sense yet, but hopefully it will in a minute. Symptom number one, the wrong audience, the wrong audience. Symptom number two, the wrong treasure, wrong treasure. Symptom number three, the wrong focus. We'll tie this together in a minute. But first, let's look at verse 16. It says there, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Fasting is a tool that God gives to us. And one way that God uses fasting is to set us free from life-dominating sins. What are life-dominating sins? It's those habits you hate, but you just keep doing those things. That would be a life-dominating sin. Isaiah 58, 6, the Lord says this about those kind of sins. He says, is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? There's power in fasting to set you free, to set other people free 
from these bonds of wickedness. I'm not talking about Barry Bonds, you know. Of course, I don't know. From what you read, maybe he could, you know, benefit from fasting. But we're talking about these life-dominating things, and as you fast, God can set you free uh, from those things. So that's one way that fasting can be used. Fasting is also a tool which helps us here to receive revelation from God. Moses fasted for 40 days before receiving the Ten Commandments, and Daniel fasted to be able to hear from God. You want to hear from God? Fasting is a good is a good thing. Now, the idea in fasting is that as we deny our flesh, our spirit becomes more attuned to the things of God. And, uh, and so really, fasting is a good thing, the Scripture would say. But what Jesus is saying here is, is don't be like the hypocrites. And that's a word we've taken from Greek into English, and it means a pretender, an actor. And, uh, and kind of the background here is that when Jesus said these things in the first century, the religious Jews in Israel would typically fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Well, those just happened to be the market days, the days the, the open-air food markets were open and everybody went to buy their food. So if you were fasting on those days, you would be seen by a lot of people. And, and uh, you know, these people wouldn't comb their hair, change their clothes. They'd walk around with this pained expression on their face. And the point was that they wanted other people to see that they were making this sacrifice for God. But Jesus is saying here, hey, when you do something for me, Remember that I am the audience. You don't need to advertise your spiritual deeds, you know, to other people. Now, some years ago, our church was meeting in Calabasas High School. We rented that, church, that school facility, much as Metro Church rents this school. Uh, we rented two restrooms, an auditorium, and some classrooms. And the school required that we return the rooms to them in the same condition we got them. In other words, if we made a mess, we had to clean it up. Well, um, a lot of other people would come onto the campus on Sunday, other than the church people, because they were used to the sports facilities and all that. And so we couldn't really control what happened with the restrooms. But anyway, one, one Sunday after service, I go into the restroom, and I just couldn't believe the men's restroom. I couldn't believe what I saw. I mean, it was some kind of disaster area. It looked like, I don't know, maybe an explosion in a manure factory or something. And it was just this gross mess all over the floors. Over the walls? I mean, I don't know how, you know, something would get on the wall. Was this man or beast? I, I don't know. It was, a, it was a mess. And uh, there were just a few people left from the church, myself, a few others, and we couldn't give it back to the school this way. So, you know, it had to be cleaned up. So, you know, I got down on my knees and, and prayed that God would send somebody else to, <laughs> to, to clean it, but, uh, but he didn't. He didn't. So I'm down there. I'm cleaning. It's a gross deal. And uh, all of a sudden, the thought occurs to me. You know, what if somebody else from the church walks in right now and sees... Well, first I have to explain, you know, this wasn't me. I didn't, you know. But, but the thought occurred to me, you know, <clears throat> they see me cleaning this up. They think, oh, what a sacrificial servant of God, you know. But, but why is it? Why do we want to be seen by others and approved by others? Why is that? I would suggest to you it's because we fail to comprehend or apply the gospel to our lives. We fail to comprehend or apply the gospel to our lives. You know, today your worth and your identity is rooted in one of two things, either what people think of you or what God thinks of you. And the gospel message is that because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross through your faith, that not only has all your sin been forgiven, taken away, but also you're now perfectly accepted and perfectly approved of by God. He looks at you and he sees the perfection of, of his son, Jesus. This is the miracle of his grace. But the point is, if we really believe this, excuse me, <clears throat> if we really believe that we're perfectly accepted 
uh, by God and perfectly approved of, then we will stop seeking approval from other people. Uh, It's going to set us free from that idea that we need to perform according to other people's expectations because we realize that we have already received the complete acceptance, approval, and affection of God. So why do we do our good works to be seen by others? Well, the first reason we just said is to gain the approval of others, but there's a second reason. We also want to prove ourselves better than other people. 1 Corinthians 13.4 tells us that love does not parade itself, does not parade itself, meaning if we truly love other people, we're not going to have this desire to uh, put ourselves on display. Now picture Queen of England in the parade. You know, she's there in her carriage and she's waving at the crowds. Now, Pastor Jack Hayford was there in England watching this parade, the, the Queen waving at the crowds, everybody saying, oh, Her Majesty, Her Majesty. And, and, and what, what occurred to Jack is he said, well, what about His Majesty? Not to put down any traditions of England, that's not the point, but but what about his majesty? What about the Lord's majesty? And that's when he wrote that song, Discover His Majesty. Recall Lucifer's story, Satan's story, Isaiah chapter 14. Listen to part of what Lucifer has to say. Now, normally we're not wanting to listen to Satan, but it's okay right now. We're going to read what the Bible says here. Uh, Isaiah 14, verse 13, we see what Lucifer says. He says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. This is where our desire to be noticed, our desire to be exalted, our desire to be better than other people, this is where that comes from. It's part of the fallen nature that originated with Satan that came into the world when Adam and Eve, instead of obeying God's commandment, they follow Satan's suggestion and and, and that's what we refer to the fall of man, all that. But there's a, there's a fallen nature that, that we have. And, and this is part of that fallen nature. And we can look to Satan, we can see these same uh, desires. So the point is, we have a choice. Every day, every hour, we can exalt ourselves so that people would see us, or we can exalt Jesus and his throne, desire that people see him, desire that people would discover his majesty. It's either going to be us on display or it's going to be Jesus on display. It'll be one or the other. So symptom number one of our problem, it's the wrong audience. We want the attention and approval of the wrong audience. We want people to notice us and think we're cool when really we should want people to notice Jesus and think he's cool because he is, right? Amen? Symptom number two, wrong treasure, wrong treasure, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. In verse 19 where it says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, it speaks in the original language of heaping up or storing up or stacking up. And the idea is that we're We're just putting away much, much more than we would ever need. So does that mean we shouldn't have a savings account or we shouldn't save for retirement or we don't leave an inheritance for our kids? No, it doesn't mean any of that. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, his grandchildren. 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his own and especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So yes, we are to 
to the extent we're able, <clears throat> supply something for those that uh, are going to continue living after we do, our, our, our family members. Now, <clears throat> Jesus makes the point in this verse that there's no permanence to this earthly treasure. He says, moth and rust are going to eat away at your treasure. Thieves are going to break in and try and steal it. And the point is, moths will eat your clothes, rust will eat your car. Thieves will break in and steal that Barry Manilow CD collection, you know, that, you know, good riddance. But, uh, you know, but, but Jesus warns that whatever your treasure is, your heart's going to attach to that. This is just like a universal spiritual law. You can't escape it. Whatever your treasure is, your heart's going to be linked to that. So here's a test as to where your treasure resides this morning, whether it's on earth or whether it's in heaven. And, the, and here would be the test. If you were to lose absolutely everything this morning, all your money, your car, your house, everything, well, I'll tell you what, we'll let you keep the clothes you got on just so it's not embarrassing. But, but let's just say you lost everything. You have nothing. Would you still be joyful? If your treasure's in heaven, if your treasure's Jesus, you would still be joyful. Now, here's, here's an illustration of that. One Sunday morning, a true, true story. I tell a lot of stories that aren't, so I have to like, differentiate. But um, one Sunday morning, somebody came running up to, to preacher John Wesley and said, you know, uh, Mr. Wesley, your, your house has just burned down. Your house has just burned down. And here's what Wesley said. He said, no, it hasn't, because I don't own a house. The house I'm living in, the Lord owns. And if that's, you know, gone, well, that's just a little less for me to take care of. That sounds like somebody whose treasure was in heaven, not on earth. Brings us to symptom number three, wrong focus, verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The eye here represents our heart. And the, and the point is we have a choice in what we set our eye upon or set our heart upon. We can set it on Light or darkness, we can focus on the things of God or the things of the world. So this discussion of the eye is really just continuing the same theme, that we've got a choice. We've got a choice between pleasing people and pleasing God. We've got a choice between earthly treasure and heavenly treasure. We've got a choice of focusing on the things of the world or the things of the Lord. Now, as we said, all of these verses are showing us three symptoms of a problem. Verse 24, Jesus tells us what the problem is. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, mammon being the God of riches. In order to understand this verse, we need to understand slavery in the first century. A slave had no rights to their own life. Um, their, Their sole purpose for existence was to serve their master. And they had no free time to call their own 24 7 Their mission was just to serve their master. So when Jesus says no one can serve two masters, he's really saying at any given time, only one thing can master you. Now to Jesus' listeners in the first century, it was obvious that if you were the slave of one master, it would be impossible for you to also at the same time be the slave of another master because slavery was an all or nothing proposition. The point that Jesus makes is that God has constructed our heart in such a way that there will always be one primary passion in our lives. God has designed us in such a way that it's impossible that we could have two equal passions in our life. Always one thing is going to be primary. One thing you will treasure above all else. 
So God says you can't serve God and mammon. You can't be a slave of both because Jesus is saying the way I've made you, it's impossible for you to have the same affection for two things. Something is going to end up primary. So here's the bottom line. A real problem, the real cause for worry is that we become the slave of something other than God. And we'll talk about how we know that in a second. But we talked about these three symptoms. Symptom one, the wrong audience. Well, we love the approval of people more than we love God. And that's, that's enslaved us. We, uh, wrong treasure. Symptom two, we love money more than we love God, and that's enslaved us. Symptom number three, wrong vision. We love the world more than we love God. That's enslaved us. So to the extent that these symptoms describe us, then you could say something other than God has become our Lord and our master. We become a slave to something else. In a minute, we'll talk about how to be set free from this slavery, this bondage we've gotten ourselves into. But first, let's finish the passage. Let's go to verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Notice this. Do not worry. It's not a suggestion. It's, it's a commandment. Jesus gives it three times in this passage. He's really serious about this, this do not worry. And it, he, he never commands us to do something we cannot do. So it, you know, worry is a choice, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they. Jesus talks about birds. Unlike people, birds don't have any plans for the future. Birds don't have a five-year plan. They don't even have a five-minute plan. I mean, birds don't look at the food crisis and go, you know what, we need to open a worm bank. You know, they, they just don't think this way. Birds don't store up anything for the future. They have to depend on God for their provision every single day, and God comes through every single day. And the lesson for us is that we also can rely on God's provision. Now, that doesn't say we don't work. The Bible says a man should work to provide for his household, but at the same time, we see these birds working. They're, they're out gathering food, but God is the one providing the food. Now, we should mention, a thought that produces worry is a good thing if it brings to mind something that needs attention in your life. You know, kind of like the oil light on your car, right? If that goes on, it means your oil's dropping. If that gets too low, you're going to ruin the engine. So that oil light's a good thing. It's telling you something needs attention. And so a thought that, 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 you know, that might evoke worry, you might wake up in the middle of the night, oh, I've got to take care of this thing, that's, that's not a bad thing because that's going to prompt you to take care of that thing. But I wouldn't put that in the same category of spending hours and days and years fretting about what will happen in the future. I think that's a very different thing. We might call it worry, uh, give it the same heading, but I think that's really something different. But that kind of thought, that kind of reminder, hey, you need to take care of something, very often God prompts those things. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. Okay, let's look at verse 33. Here's the cure. But seek first the kingdom of God. Why would God command that? It's because he thinks maybe we aren't. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So this is the cure for worry. This is the conclusion of this whole passage. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus tells us to do two things here. First, put God first. And the cause of worry is that you put something else first. And and listen, hear this, is that 
When you do that, when you put something other than Jesus first in your life, by definition, it's something you can lose, right? If you put the approval of people first, well, people are fickle. You can lose that approval. One day they say, he's saying, yeah, I know. Uh, you know, one day they say, Hosanna. Another day it's crucify him. I mean, people are going to change all the time. So if, if that's on the throne of your life, boy, what people think of me, well, you can easily lose that. And because you can easily lose it, you're going to worry about losing it. Same thing with money. Uh, it's easy to lose money or possessions. Proverbs 23, 5, will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle, eagle toward heaven. The money just flew out of my purse, you know. I mean, we've all had this experience, money just evaporating on us. We had it, and then we don't, and, you know, what's going on? But, but here's the thing, is that if what you value most in life is something you could easily lose, you will worry about it. And so the, the, the solution to that, the way to be free from worry, is to put first what you cannot lose. Put the kingdom of God first. You can't lose that. And then Jesus tells us here two things to do to be free from worry. We talked about the first one, seek first his kingdom. But he also says, and his righteousness. What's that mean? Well, righteousness could be translated rightness. In other words, correctness of thought and feeling. And here's the lesson. If we begin to see things rightly in the right perspective and priority. If we begin to see things as Jesus sees them, and that happens to a great extent as we read his word and, and begin to absorb his truth. Well, when, when, when we do that, we begin to have his mind. We begin to treasure the things that Jesus treasures, and then we're going to have his peace. Why? Because he is peace. He's the prince of peace. He's the God of peace. He's not the God of worry. And Isaiah put it this way in, in uh, uh, the Lord speaking here, uh, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. This is, the, this is the way God wants his children to live, in peace, not in worry. Our final verse, verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is saying, I want you at all times to live in the present, to, to live in the present. But the fact is, many Christians waste this life. They waste this life because they live this life as if they were crucified between two thieves. On the one hand, the regrets of the past, the sin, the failures, the mistakes, the lost opportunities. On the other hand, the fears and worries about the future, what's going to happen. And, and, and the reason those things uh, uh, are called thieves, or we would call them thieves, is that they rob us of joy today. They also rob us of the opportunity to do the things that God has ordained uh, for us today because we're all focused on the past or the future, and we miss those things that God has ordained for today. Something that, that you can notice as you go through the Bible, throughout the Bible, God reminds us that he's the great I am, the great I am, present tense, many, many statements, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I'm the good shepherd. All these are, are present tense, and that's really making the point that God is operating in the present. There's things that he wants to do today. He wants to be the great I am in your life today. And there's so much that he wants to do in and through your life today. But, you know, we, we sit there crucified between these two thieves and so much focus on the past and the future. We're missing what he has for us today. This is the only, this is the only time frame God can operate in today. He wants to work in your life today. 
two weeks ago Saturday. It was kind of a low day for me. I don't know if you have those, but, but I was there. I was crucified between these two thieves. I'm thinking about the failures of the past, especially what I was uh, thinking about was, you know, I haven't done that much for God. I'm been that effective for God. The other, the other thing that uh, I was looking at the future, and I don't know if you read this stuff, but you know, you'll see these predictions that if you're in reasonable health, you'll live to be 90 or 95. I don't know who'd want to, but, but you know, uh, you read this and you say, okay, um, you know, how, will our money last till we're like 95? You know, I can't even uh, comprehend of that, you know. Uh, and so I brought these things to the Lord. You know, Lord, what about, uh, you know, I haven't been doing uh, enough for you. And, and what about the future and these needs? The Lord didn't answer. So then I went about my day doing the things I had to do. First, I put gas in the car. I'm at the gas station, and I noticed this guy, and um, appeared like he might be homeless. You can tell him to call back. But, um, I, it looked like he might be homeless. And, and, um, and normally I would, I would try to minister to that person, but you know, I'm feeling so lousy today. I'm thinking, I need ministry, you know? But, but I thought, well, it's not his fault, you know? So I, so I go over to this guy, and I give him some money. I give him the Gospel of John tract I carry in the car. Shook his hand, talked you know, talk to him a little bit, learned his name. And... and um, as I was walking back to my car, the guy says, hey, and he's waving the gospel in the air, and he goes, this is just what I needed. Well, you know, it might seem like cause for rejoicing, but I know Brian spent some time ministering the homeless. Karen and I have as well. And what we discover is that, that people that have great, great needs, they kind of learn that to tell you what they think you want to hear in order they can get their need met. And, and so... I didn't really, I mean, I, maybe it's I'm jaded, but I just kind of thought, well, I hope that's the case, but I didn't necessarily immediately embrace that. Anyway, so um, as I'm driving, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, well, maybe that is true. You know, so hallelujah, you know, he realizes his need for the gospel. Um, or maybe it's not yet true. You know, maybe he stuffs it in a pocket and he reads it in a day or a week and, and, and recognizes his need for Jesus uh, down the road. Okay, good, you know. But anyway, so my next stop is the whole food store. And there's a gal there who's like a very gifted flower arranger. Uh, and, but she's got lots of problems. Her husband's very ill. Her daughter's got MS. And, but that's not her biggest problem. Her biggest problem is she has a wrong picture of God. She sees God as a great punisher. She knows nothing of his, of his love and his grace. So about the past year, I've been telling her about Jesus. And Anyway, so I should mention, the last time I was in the store, last time I saw her, Prior to this Saturday, was uh, I had gone in there just for Mother's Day, and I wanted to get some flowers for my beautiful wife, Carrie. <laughs> she said, "Are you going to talk about me?" I realized, "Wow, I guess I am." Anyway, um, but anyway, so I walk up to this gal, and it's just for Mother's Day, and she is super overwhelmed. She's the only one they've got. She's got hundred make hundreds of arrangements for Mother's Day, and she's working on these beautiful centerpieces. And I said, "Wow, that's really beautiful." She's well. You know, I've got hundreds of things to make for Mother's Day, and then I get this call, they've got this funeral, they want to make 50 table settings, and you know, why do they have to die right before Mother's Day anyway, you know? And she's just cussing and complaining, and she's all having a lousy day. And So I was coming up to her to say, hey, could you make this arrangement for my wife? And I'm thinking, well, I don't know, maybe I should. And so I grabbed some flowers, out, cut flowers out of the case. I'm going to make my own arrangement. Now, I should mention, for the good of mankind, there are a couple occupations I should never undertake. One would be nuclear power plant operator. Second would be flower ranger. Either one's going to be an ugly disaster. But, but you know, she grabs the flowers out of my hand. She says, no, no, let me do this. I'll, give me a half an hour. So anyway, I'm walking around the store, and the Lord says, I want you to give her some money, and I want you to tell her it's from Jesus. Okay. So I get the flowers from her. 
I give her the money. I say, this is from Jesus. You don't know it isn't. Jesus never gives people money. I say, yes, he does. He does it every day. <laughs> anyway, I leave the store. She's overwhelmed, kind of trying to deal with everything. So that was 10 days earlier. And then I walk in on this Saturday. Just been, it's kind of a low day for me. Just spent at the gas station. I walk in. She comes up to me. She says, i got to tell you what happened. She said, the day you gave me that money, my car had been on empty for two days. So I didn't have a dollar. I didn't even have money to buy lunch. And I'm thinking, you need to work at Whole Foods. Why don't you just graze like everybody else, you know? <laughs> but, but, but she asked me, she said, said, did you know that I needed the money? I said, no, but God did. And you could just see her, her picture of God. She had this picture of this puny God who doesn't care and can't help her anyway. And, 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 and just her, her picture of God got stretched, you know. You could kind of see the wheels turning in her head. And, and so, you know, as I left the store, I realized that in the space of an hour, two people said, well, this is just what I needed. I thought, well, I don't know, maybe you are working God in my life a little bit. But anyway, so as I'm walking the car, God begins this dialogue. Not an audible voice. I've never heard an audible voice. But there's, as you know, there's times that you hear from God, you know he's speaking. This is one of those times. And, and he says, Steve, many years ago, you prayed a prayer. And this was like 15 years ago. I, I pray more often than every 15 years, but this was a particular <laughs> prayer he was, he was talking about. But um, anyway, uh, he said, many years ago, you prayed a prayer. You asked to be my checking account. You said, put the money in. You tell me who to give it to. I'll give him. He says, you know, all these years, I've been faithful. I, I've not only met your needs, I've given you extra money. You give away to ministries and people. And, and he says, why would you think just because you get older, I'm going to stop doing it. I'm the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And so he answered my prayer, and the way he did it, it was kind of a rebuke, really. It's like, you know, you have little faith, right? But it was comforting at the same time. It's kind of like David wrote that, uh, your rod and your staff come for me. The rod and the staff are instruments of correction. Sheep's going off the path, you bang them with the rod or whatever. Um, you know, we're, we're comforted. Well, we're corrected because it shows us God is in control and God loves us or he wouldn't correct us, the scripture says. And, and so the reason we worry is we're not seeking first the kingdom of God. And that's because we put something else first in our life. It might be money, possessions, success, some sin, whatever. And those things have distanced us from God. And so as we stand at a distance from God, we begin to doubt him. You know, I've got this pressing problem today. Does, does he even care? Is he even able to take care of it? That's, that's kind of where we find ourselves. But what got us to that place? It was idolatry. We've, we've, we've valued something more than Jesus. We put something else on the throne of our life. I want you to try to imagine something. If you're not married, I want you to imagine you are married. If that's your husband. And, um, but imagine you're married and every thought that your spouse has is not about you. It's about someone else. Every word out of their mouth is not about you. It's about someone else. And even worse, they act upon those thoughts and words and, and they commit adultery against you and they leave you. It's horrific stuff. I'm going somewhere with this stuff. And, and I also want to say, you know, a group this size, this has actually happened to some of you uh, statistically. Uh, the, you still ache from the, the pain of that betrayal. Uh, and, and if that's you, if you've experienced that betrayal, you know, my prayer is the Lord would heal you even now. And I think the Lord's going to do some healing today, you know, perhaps in some hearts. But, but I bring this up, this painful, difficult subject. I bring this up 
Because many of us have kicked Jesus off the throne of our life and we put something else on his throne. We've been seeking first something else. And in doing that, we've broken the heart of Jesus. Jesus refuses to be second place in your life or my life. It's just an utter impossibility. Just as you would say, it's an utter impossibility. I'm going to share my spouse with another person. And Jesus addresses this issue, speaks to this issue of leaving your first love. In in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 4, I'm going to read that to you. Uh, And and the the background is he's speaking to a church here. He's speaking to people in ministry. By the way, we're all in ministry, whether we're full-time or part-time. If, you're, if Jesus is your Lord, you're in the ministry. And he's speaking to people in the ministry, and you know, he's praising their good works, and yet he's saying, you've left me. I mean, how absurd is that? You're serving Jesus, and yet Jesus isn't even first in your life. Does this make sense? It's, it's crazy stuff. But, but, the, but this is what he says. Listen to what he says. He praises their good works, and he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Jesus gives a three-step remedy for those who have left their first love. They made Jesus second to something. Step one in returning to that, Jesus to that first place in your life is to remember, Jesus says, remember. Do you remember what it was like when you first came to know Jesus, when he was the singular passion in your life? Can you remember that? Do you remember what that was like? You know, when nothing excited you more than to be with him, you'd sit at his feet for hours in prayer and just enthralled and thrilled. And, and, and you opened his word with joy and anticipation. Do you remember this? Do you remember this time? For some of you, that would be now, hallelujah. But for many of us, you know, maybe we've cooled down. Maybe, maybe something else has come in and he used to be our singular passion, but now there's other things that have, that, that have come in. But if something other than Jesus has become first in your life, Jesus says, step one, I want you to remember what it was like between you and me back then. Think back to that. Remember that. Step two, Jesus says, repent. You've been going the wrong direction. You've been going away from me. Turn around and start going toward me. Walk with me. And finally, Jesus says, do the first works. What what did you do when you first fell in love with Jesus? What did you do? Whatever that is, do that again. That's what he's saying. You see, in marriage, if you keep your eyes on your spouse, every year that goes by, your spouse is going to become more beautiful, more exciting, more thrilling to you in your eyes. But if, on the other hand, if your eyes are on someone else, you're going to distance yourself from your spouse. You're going to begin to find fault with them. You're going to put them under the microscope and look at all their flaws. There's an old hymn which teaches the same truth. It says, fix your eyes upon Jesus and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim. But the opposite of that's also true. You can fix your eyes on the world. Things of Jesus will grow strangely dim. Worry is a symptom. It's a symptom of a very serious problem. And the problem is you've left Jesus for another lover. Something else has captured your heart. And Jesus gives us the cure. Remember what it was like, Jesus says. Just, just you and Jesus. Remember, think back to what that was like when you first knew him. And then repent, turn around, and do the first works. Whatever that was that you did back when you first knew Jesus, do that again. That's what he's saying. And you'll be set free from worry. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. 
And Lord, we confess. I don't know about anybody else here, but, but I confess, Lord, that there are things that have come in, things I've valued more, things I've been more excited about than you. And God, you, you hate that. You call it spiritual adultery. You call it idolatry. You, you continually punished Israel for that. You won't tolerate it, God. You, you, you hung on a cross and bled for me. And God, I just confess to you that <laughs> your word says you thought of me when you were there. And, and I confess to you, I, so many other things are in my thoughts and my heart. So Lord, I, I repent before you and uh, pray for anybody here, Lord, that's in that position, that their heart would also be bowed low before you, repenting, receiving your forgiveness, your restoration. Their desire, my desire, would be to put you first again, return to that place that we once were. And Lord, this is not trivial stuff. It's not, oh, what a cute little message, and let's go figure out where we're going to have lunch. Jesus, this is so vitally important to you. And really in Scripture, we don't see an example of any believers that God would commend to us except those that are on fire for him. We don't see a single example of God praising anybody or pointing to anybody. Or God, it's, it's just a tragedy when we move away from you. And I pray that you just cleanse our hearts today, that give us the courage and, and show us the steps to lay down these idols. And that henceforth, God, you would be the singular affection of our heart, Lord. Be nothing else that would capture our hearts and our minds. Lord, we give you this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts, please visit valleymetrochurch.com.